The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or the staff to the impeachment trial house managers. Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the February 16th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, my guests are Janet Rappaport, international tax attorney and candidate for the March 9th special election to fill the recently vacated seat for the Orange County Board of Supervisors 2nd District. In the second segment, Samantha Trad, the California State Director for Compassion and Choices, will talk about the campaign to keep and improve the End of Life Option Act in the California legislature. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Janet Rappaport, international tax attorney, to talk about her candidacy in the March 9th, 2021 special election to fill the recently vacated seat in the Orange County Board of Supervisors 2nd District. Although the 2nd District includes Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Cypress, La Palma, Rossmore, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Stanton, Buena Park, Los Alamitos, Seal Beach, and the sliver of Anaheim, the reach of this Board of Supervisor office extends throughout the county of 3.3 million constituents. So that is why the interest that the KUCI community radio station takes up with this. Janet Rappaport's service includes 11 years in the U.S. Navy and in the community with the California Community Foundation, a creation of the UCI Medical School Annual Irving Rappaport MDDMD Award for Excellence, that's honoring her late father, her pro bono work, and her city involvement in Newport Beach includes an appointment to the Citizen Advisory Committee by the City of Newport Beach, Coastal Bay Water Quality Committee, and various stints with the Boys and Girls Club, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in Orange County, and board member for several nonprofits, including the Baroque Musical Festival in Corona Del Mar. She completed her undergraduate degree at Stanford University and her two law degrees at Pepperdine University Caruso School of Law and the New York University School of Law. She was a legislative assistant following her education, and then she completed a federal court clerkship, an attorney advisor to the United States Tax Court, and she is currently an adjunct professor of law at Chapman University Fowler School of Law. She comes to us today from her home in Newport Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Janet Rappaport. Thank you for having me. I'm um, very excited to be able to have this opportunity to discuss my campaign and, um, and why I um, am uh, a candidate at this particular time for this particular seat. So first, uh, the, just I'm going to work with mainly some general questions and we may get into some specifics, but tell us what is motivating you to run for the County Board of Supervisor at this time? So this 
seat, as as we all know, was a, a vacancy seat. So the issue to run or not run came up after the November election. But my main focus, I'm a I'm not a professional politician. I'm a citizen. I um, have uh, practiced law for all of my life, but I feel that uh, the issues with the pandemic and the um, controlling of this virus are really in need of some additional uh, experience and just different creative solutions. And I felt that if there was a time to <clears throat> help out and offer service, public service, this was it. And that is my motivation really to do that and listen to the needs of the people at second district because I'm not sure that those needs are being heard. So all of the other candidates have served on an elected municipal capacities so that the rest of them have that distinguishing feature. You, your municipal experience includes um, the Coastal Bay Water Quality Committee for Newport. So that there is a there is that difference. So then how would you, Janet Rappaport, lead as a county board of supervisor on what I would characterize as a reactive, ideologically conservative, and an opaque body? How do you intend to lead in a district that is part conspiracy stoking right wing, part rattled seniors, part disengaged about local government and part exhausted essential workers? So um, <laughs> that's a good question. I think I have a, a good um, answer. First of all, stepping back to my experience, um, while yes, as a citizen, I did serve on a committee in the uh, city of Newport Beach, my entire career uh, has been spent in helping U.S. companies uh, overseas in very complex cross-border transactions, financial, contractual, uh, et cetera, and moving into uh, municipal environments all over the world, negotiating with those governments, dealing with those governments. And I feel that I have a great deal of experience in managing uh, very, very large infrastructure projects, putting together financing, you know, not here in Orange County, but all over the world. So I think I'm perfectly capable and have the skill set to be able to come into a, a situation where you have many different stakeholders or many different um, uh, components to deal with as the personalities and the philosophies that you just mentioned and come to solution and come to implementation of uh, you know, whatever it is that we might be looking at, whether it's a, a, you know, maybe a homeless situation or a budget issue. Those are the kinds of things that I've handled in the commercial area for all of my life. And so this is just using those same skills, but doing it in the construct of a municipal government. So I think it's, I think it's the skill set that I have and the background in financial matters and review of public company SEC disclosure and filing and managing risk and those kinds of things. I, I think I bring a large skill set to the table and I'm a neutral 
and in terms of all the politics. So I think I have a little bit more to offer based on my, my um, career experience. Well, Janet Rappaport, I can hear how there's a, a logistic part of what you could bring to the County Board of Supervisors in the kind of the workings of contractual obligations and that kind of thing. I'm concerned about the transparency of negotiating those kinds of documents and contractual obligations. It's been very difficult since the pandemic for the public to get an opportunity to see what kinds of contracts, many of them no bid contracts, have been completed by the board. How would you lead where there is a lack of willingness to open up what those contracts are, to open up the CARES Act spending. We aren't getting that information. It's been very hard. Yes, so I'm glad you brought that up because that has been a, a very distressing issue and the disclosures that are now coming out in the media about how these um, contracts have been entered into and the lack of transparency and you know, one of my um, main components, even before we were, even before I found out about this particular issue was having transparency in the decision-making in the board, because this is not new. This is, I think, a chronic issue, but with regard to the CARES Act spending, it is very problematic. We have, what is it, $544 million. The Board of Supervisors, not only are they not telling us where it went, they actually delegated the authority to staff to actually let these contracts and they didn't read them. They didn't, and now when we wanna know where the money went, they're not disclosing it. So I would be um, advocating, first of all, you have to know what's in those contracts um, and you have to disclose it to the taxpayers. That's taxpayer dollars. There should be a list of, um, you know, the expenditures, just like any company has to put out um, and disclose what they're doing to their management. We have the taxpayers, it's their money, they deserve to know. And I think um, what I've read is that there's, you know, conversation within the Board of Supervisors and the staff, uh, apparently about this, but that conversation should be a public listing of, here's what we've done this week for you, and here's where your money is going. It should be all above board. So at both the Board of Supervisors meetings and the press conferences throughout the pandemic, there was every opportunity to answer the question about budgets, about contracts. And there was a lack of willingness to even remain at the press conference. Board of Supervisors still would roll out the weekly data on the COVID cases and then she would leave and there was no opportunity to ask those questions. And we got word salads after that. It's giving word salads a bad name. I th that, so, <laughs> um, and we were watching also when there was something, we couldn't tell what was going on in the background, but the county board supervisors voting on the contracts for the John Wayne the private aviation services. There was something going on. And then we see later on, the end game is that the former board of chair of the supervisors is now serving on the transportation committee in the US Congress. It's 
it, that kind of whole opaque kind of relationship with businesses is a big concern. We don't know what they're obligated to. And we're now finding out about the Othena contract that has not operated well to distribute vaccines. And so those things could have been brought up when reporters were asking questions in the late fall, how is this going to work? Where's the money going? And there was no question. I want you to speak as specifically as you can, how you're motivated to run for office, how you want to take your leadership and prying open that way that the board has been used to doing business. Yeah. So first of all, I, um, I think in terms of the press or the press conferences, if they even had them during the pandemic, if we even look next door to Los Angeles, I mean, I, I knew more about what was happening in, in LA and perhaps New York than I did in Orange County. It was very difficult to even access any information about what was going on. And I feel that if I were elected, I would be maybe not on a daily basis, maybe that's too much, but any, you know, periodically there has to be um, presence of the elected officials, the public servants have to be at that press conference from start to finish, answer all the questions that the press has, because it is the only way that people in Orange County have um, information about what is going on with their tax dollars, what is going on with their health. And uh, particularly in the middle of a pandemic, people's stress level is very high. And the fact that public servants are not taking the time to be with what is really their customers, the people, is not appropriate. So I would be very communicative. I feel that in any situation, whether you have good news or bad news, the more you communicate with the people that need to know, the more they are able to plan their lives or you know, make decisions and feel that at least their needs are being met. So there, there are also other issues, you know, with regard to, I feel the Brown Act um, requirements of municipal governments to have open hearings about all of these kinds of things, contract negotiations and so forth. And I think that I, I certainly would be following all of those rules. And I come from a very ethical, business environment where everything is accounted for and in projects that are hundreds of millions of dollars it is not even possible to work in the area that I've worked in my career and not account for pretty much every single penny and so it is um, outrageous to me to see that 544 million dollars has been spent and nobody knows where that went and who it went to. And I think the people have an absolute right to know. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Janet Rapoport, international tax attorney and candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, second district. The special election is March 9th. Early voting has already begun. At this interview is taking place on February 13th. So I need to move on that another sort of transparency or an accountability issue is the funds that are available to address the 
housing need, both affordable and especially the emergency housing stock, you'd be in a position, Janet Rappaport, to move the funds from the county more to cities so that they could start building, creating, facilitating the availability of homeless shelters and services. How do you propose you would get those funds to move that haven't been moving? Well, if we're talking about general homeless issue, I think one of the things to look at with regard to the movement of these funds is actually to spend some time to understand the constituencies that we are trying to meet. Because there has been discussion, generally speaking, about the homeless population. You know, I've, I've looked into this over the years just because it is such a, a large issue and have, uh, you know, attended as much public outreach meetings and um, read about these issues. But I, I feel that any answer about how and where to move funds needs to be based on the people that we are trying to get those funds to and what their needs are. For example, we have chronic homeless people. We have homeless people now as a result of the pandemic. We have people who are perhaps less long-term who maybe are out of a job, living in a car, you know, families in, in cars, single mothers, these kinds of things. So each of these constituencies in the homeless population have a different need. And we need to, to look at how we can best get them into shelter. So somebody who's just lost an apartment due to the pandemic, you know, lost a job and so forth, can easily move into um, some sort of shelter. It could be a hotel, it could be a, a newly built facility, right? But they're gonna go in because they just lost their shelter and they're gonna be able to get off the street very quickly. But if we go to, for example, the category of the chronic homeless person, that person maybe has been out for years. Those people need really social support and it could be years before they actually can get from the street and get into shelter. And then when they do get into shelter, it can't just be a standalone apartment. It has to be a shelter that has social services trying to get those people back into living inside, uh, taking care of themselves inside. So I think the answer that I have is to understand exactly the populations in the different cities and figure out based on a detail analysis and review who needs what and move those funds appropriately into those communities. How would you operationalize that effort? In, in terms of actually getting funds to the cities or right. in terms And you're of, saying you confer with the city. So how, how would that look? How would it, how would oh, you start and follow through? Well, okay. So I think I would, well, okay. So assuming, you know, I'm elected. So I think that there would be a, a forum for each city, each of the cities. And let's say it's, um, you know, Huntington Beach, for example. So you do have a city council, uh, obviously, who has knowledge about this, but you also have, you know, community leaders, you know, the church leaders, the different, um, could even be boys and girls clubs. It could be all of these different communities, who, community organizations who might have been 
supporting those homeless and shelterless individuals or families in that community. And I think you have to bring all of those stakeholders together and say, in this area, what is it that everybody can agree on that we need? And I've seen this happen before in other um, issues where you get a bunch of people who have different ideas about solution, but you put them together and in a certain format and you come up with solution and maybe it's not the best thing. Maybe one person would have wanted, you know, option A and one wants option B and we end up agreeing that, okay, we can get to option C and you move forward. So you're at least making some progress. So that's what I would suggest. Okay, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is Janet Rappaport, international tax attorney and candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, second district. We're breaking down aspects of the Orange County Board of Supervisors budget, the county budget. There have been admittedly some log jams to those resources being expended. There's quite a few stockpiling in the county at this point. So I've had also on some of my radio shows, the people's budget topic. And I'd like for you, Janet Rappaport, to, to talk about how you would direct the sheriff's office to set priorities of both enforcing the pandemic and meeting those particular needs of people that have been incarcerated who also like the homeless demographic that the incarcerated also are in need of social services as they're transitioning either out of jail or of other incarcerated arrangements. Correct. And I, and I think, you know, the sheriff's office has been at least as much as I know um, as a, as a citizen has had some funding from the CARES Act to be able to carry out some of these activities. Like with anything that I would do, um, I think it would be, first of all, sitting down with the sheriff. I don't know the sheriff, and but I would sit down and have a discussion about what is going on, what needs to, you know, what support they need, um, you know, from their perspective, I'm sure there's a, a discussion there. But I think the main thing is to talk about that. And I am a, you know, fresh face to the board if I'm elected. I'm not one of the usual politicians. I don't have an agenda. I'm just there to try to solve a problem. So as with, um, and I mentioned, I've worked overseas in many different countries and it's the same thing. You have a situation with the government. So you sit down and you talk about the issues and you try to work them out because that's what we are all here to do. And I think the sheriff is probably very motivated to help the people of Orange County. I certainly am by running for this position. So I think it would be a discussion and trying to come to some resolution and, and get the needs of the, um, the constituents that are under the sheriff's jurisdiction um, met. And I do know from voter outreach that some people do have questions about what is the position of the sheriff and why does the sheriff have the position about enforcement of particular laws. And I think communication of whatever that answer is to the public is important. 
And so, so that would be my approach, I think would be to have conversation and not necessarily have those be private, but make sure that the results of those conversations are communicated to everybody in Orange County. So in your recent piece in The Voice of OC, you were talking about the pandemic and the distribution of the life-saving vaccines and coordination. And so that gets to the public health, the healthcare agency expenditures in Orange County, and there's the public safety component. And it's over the last 10 years, the public health component, it is literally ratcheting downward and the public safety budget items have gone upward with the CARES Act, $93 million were spent on the public safety while 58 million on the healthcare agency. How would you address that yawning gap between the public safety support and the healthcare agency that is saddled with a huge opening pandemic responsibility? Well, I, I think that we, the one thing is fortunately we are looking at additional supportive funding coming from the federal government. And I think that those funds really do, we do need to look at shoring up the public health um, spend here because one of the issues in addition to just in general, the rollout of the vaccine to the, to the public is that we have a huge um, mental health crisis that seems to be impacting our children. And the existence of this pandemic is a traumatic event. The studies, the CDC just came out with um, um, a guideline about this and some studies about this. And so I, I think we, we have, we've got to allocate some additional funding, of course, to public health because they are trying to do the vaccine rollout. And obviously that is not going as well as it might have, or we might've hoped it to go. But the other issue that I think would um, mandate additional funding into public health and is to take care of these overarching concerns about the um, men or yes, mental health of the young children who are the K through 12. And so I think there's enough studies out now and even the governor's budget has a specific funding line for this issue. And, and so uh, I agree with, I think what you were potentially implying is that we have a little bit of a misallocation of funds between the two uh, groups right now. And I do believe, and I would support putting more funding back into public health. And then with you know this overlay of the, every child in Orange County now is potentially affected by this pandemic and not in a uh, beneficial way. And I think we need to do something about that right away. I would like as a final, uh part of the interview, if you would like to make, and I, I certainly hope that this opportunity is not a reiteration of like a stump delivery, but I would like for Janet Rapport, for you to give us a kind of a, a closing statement for why second district, Board of Supervisor district voters should support you. 
Well, thank you very much for that. And I will um, uh, speak from the heart. Uh, I am running for this position, um, not for political ambition. I um, am a citizen. I feel very strongly. I grew up in Orange County. So I feel very strongly about everything that happens in Orange County and, and making sure that the people here have a representative that they can reach out to and is solely focused on their needs. And I, I um, don't see that happening right now on the Board of Supervisors. I've you know, been familiar with them for many years, but in particular and recently, I just don't feel that citizens' needs are being met. And I have uh, a great deal of experience from my um, career as a, a, a lawyer. And I think I can add that um, transparency, the ethics, and a lot of really good creative ideas based on international experience um, and, and bring all of that to the Board of Supervisors, but most importantly, bring it to the residents of the second district. And uh, if I were elected, I would be reachable, I'd be visible, and I'd be accountable to the voters and the voters alone. And will you complete a Ballotpedia survey? Uh, yes, I'm not sure what that is, but... There are two of the six candidates that have completed it. So um, it's one of the resources voters go to and journalists, of course, go to. So, okay. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Janet Rappaport. Thank you. My guest was Janet Rappaport, international tax attorney and candidate for the Orange County Board of Supervisors, second district. The special election is March 9th for those residing in Fountain Valley, Huntington Beach, Cypress, La Palma, Rossmore, Costa Mesa, Newport Beach, Stanton, Buena Park, Los Alamitos, Seal Beach, and a sliver of Anaheim. We'll be right back with Samantha Trad, the California State Director for Compassion and Choices, talking about the campaign to keep and improve the End of Life Option Act. Welcome back to the show. My next guest is Samantha Trod, the California State Director for Compassion and Choices, speaking today in the capacity as Compassion and Choices Action Network about very current legislation, California Senate Bill 380, known as the Reauthorize and Improve the End of Life Option Act, the topic of this interview. Samantha Trad works toward expanding patient-centered and patient-directed end-of-life care across the state. She is an expert on implementing medical aid in dying laws and leads education and outreach efforts in California to eliminate barriers for eligible patients who want the option of medical aid in dying under the California End-of-Life Option Act. Previously, Samantha taught American politics at the University of 
Redlands and was the executive director of the Arizona Advocacy Network. Samantha earned her Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from the University of Redlands and her Master's of Arts in International and Political Studies from Charles University in Prague, Czechoslovakia. She comes to us today from Redlands, California. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Samantha Trad. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to have you. So based on really important conversations and experiences and terrific reads penned by Atul Gawande, Paul Kaliniti, and I'll even mention the Tibetan book of Living and Dying. We've learned how much our culture's buried, how important this end of life step taking is, how we're entitled to our autonomy toward getting the monumental milestone of this end of life situation and all the decisions and choices involved amidst this right, how important it is for us all to have. So I'm so glad that you're unpacking for us the status quo and what we can expect is improved in Senate Bill 380. So it was just introduced on February 11th. It's just brand new. So it has the prospect of being enacted in the next two-year period, correct? Yes. And it's a really important bill You know, the California End of Life Option Act passed in 2015, but it included a sunset provision so that the law would have to be voted on again and the lawmakers would have to decide whether or not we should keep the End of Life Option Act. And what the End of Life Option Act does is it authorizes the option of medical aid in dying for a terminally ill person who has six months or less to live. They also need to be an adult who's mentally capable and they need to be able to take the medication themselves. There's no assistance or anything like this. It's a medication to help someone peacefully end their suffering, somebody who's already dying. And we found that the law works really well for those who can access it. I've heard so many beautiful stories from people who, you know, they didn't want to die, but when they didn't have any other option, they were so grateful to be able to go on their own terms. And that's the beautiful thing that, that the California end of life option act has done for them. And there's some other great things about the California end of life option act. You know, you talked about a Guande and, you know, the importance of planning ahead for the end of your life. And it's, you know, in our culture, people don't like to talk about death. But the thing is talking about death won't kill you, (laughs) but really it's important for us to talk about it because we need to know and understand what our loved ones want at the end of life. And we all want something different. And the end of life option act, I think gave people a voice in talking to their doctors about what they want at the end of life. You know, most people don't know what palliative care is. They don't really understand hospice. But when they talk to their doctor about aid and dying medication, something to ease their suffering, they have a language now that they can talk to their doctor about. And it's so important to talk to your medical providers about what you want. And if you do think you want the option of medical aid and dying, it's really important to start early because what we found and the reason we need this bill is that there are many barriers in place that make it very difficult for dying Californians to be able to access this compassionate option. Well, I've learned anecdotally that 
the process of Alzheimer's makes it absolutely impossible for a dementia patient in later stages. There's no way they'd meet these criteria and they wouldn't likely meet the criteria set up in Senate Bill 380 either. But so there's so many situations that people are having to, I'm going to say navigate, not negotiate. I mean, navigate. Yes. And I will say there are other very compassionate end of life options for people who have Alzheimer's or other forms of advanced dementia. And I would encourage everybody to go on our website. We have tools called finish strong tools. It's compassionandchoices.org, And you can actually fill out an advanced healthcare directive specific in the case of you getting Alzheimer's. And it's really interesting. It, it takes you through kind of a quiz almost because there's different stages of Alzheimer's and different end of life options you can choose from depending on the stage you're at, but you're absolutely right. Medical aid and dying is not an option for people with advanced dementia. You need to be mentally aware of the decision you're making, and you need to be able to advocate for the medication yourself. And um, this bill will not change that. And you mentioned the six month interval. That can be also a very too particular kind of term for people to actually know, okay, six months, that's the trajectory I'm on. That's the arc of my terminal illness. Yeah, the prognosis can be difficult. And for some doctors, they think, okay, well, if my patient stopped treatment, they would have six months or less. So they would qualify for medical aid and dying. Um, but other doctors, you know, it, it can be difficult to tell exactly how much time a person has left, but we do feel that criteria of being imminently terminally ill for the most part, it's, it's an important safeguard in the law because we want to make sure, you know, that the people who, who access medical aid and dying, you know, again, the purpose of it is to help ease people suffering it's to help people be able to die on their terms. And the people who choose medical aid and dying, they don't want to die, but they do want to have some control over the end of their life. And I guess all the people that are involved in this negotiation, I'm talking in the legislature, you know, everybody has really different experiences of terminal situations to know mm-hmm. the really nuanced setting this is in where people they don't know what they do unless they're faced with that. So it's sort of, they're, they're, the map is the emotional and the family experience map must be a really interesting place. Yeah, you know, it, it's been really interesting. I've had the pleasure of talking with many of our state legislators over the last few years. Um, I've been giving them updates on how the law is working and um, a lot of them are new. And, you know, it's, it's a very different issue than so many others, because I found myself hearing from legislators about very personal experiences they've had with their parents or their loved ones at the end of life. And this issue, it's, it's really not a partisan issue. It's a human issue. And what I found is that that personal experience that people go through is so important. And I've been surprised by some legislators who may not naturally support a bill like this, but because of their lived experiences, they get it. You know, they, they want to have options at the end of life. They want their loved ones to have options at the end of life. And most people don't want to suffer at the end of life. They want to be able to access medical aid and dying if they qualify for it. 
So there's a kind of whole different bearing they may have. They may be more forthcoming because it was such a deeply experienced situation. Yeah. 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 For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Samantha Trad, the California State Director for Compassion and Choices. And she is speaking in her capacity as leading the Action Network, because this is an advocacy that she is performing in this respect in this interview. So how does Senate Bill 380, how does that pertain to what many of us in Orange County are observing about the disentangling of the ownership portfolio of Hogue Hospital, Newport Beach, disentangling the earlier Hogue ownership with the co-ownership with the Providence St. Joseph system? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. And I'm really grateful that Hogue is trying to end their partnership, their affiliation with Providence St. Joseph's because St. Joseph's does not allow patients to access the full range of end of life options. And as an organization that's dedicated to patient directed care at end of life, we really support Hogue in their quest to be independent so that doctors can practice the full range of medicine and that patients at Hogue can access the full range of end of life options. And, you know, as it stands right now, I don't think a patient could access medical aid in dying because St. Joseph's does not allow their doctors to support patients in the option of medical aid in dying. And one of the provisions in this bill is about transparency. In fact, there's a few provisions about transparency. Mm -hmm. We can't force religious healthcare systems to let their doctors practice the full range of medicine. But what we can do is have healthcare systems and hospices, hospitals like Hogue put on their website very clearly their policy on the end of life option act so that people can look online and find out very easily where they can access medical aid and dying and where they can't. Because what we have found is that some medical providers will tell a patient, we will never abandon you. We'll support you to the end. And then when it's time for a patient to get their prescription for aid and dying, they find out, oh no, we don't do that. And you know, it's so hard to find a doctor when you're healthy. It's a million times more difficult when you're dying, especially if you have to go to a whole new medical facility, if you even have the opportunity to do that. And so we really want to make sure that all terminally ill Californians can access medical aid in dying, no matter where they're at. And um, that is something that this bill addresses. And particular to that, it's a delicate situation where one is already facing so many choices. And then if there's like, I'm just going to call it, I'm going to call it what it is. If there's a sort of a dogma in Mm -hmm. what is acceptable, what is an allowed procedure, because it it deals with the end and the beginning of life and the in the middle of life kinds of situations that the Providence St. Joseph system has eliminated as available options for patients. So with the complexities of the options, the health choices patients are making to have to feel like there's dogma you have to work around, it just seems like nightmarish to me. Yeah. But there are universal needs that people look at this option differently than just a, from a purely dogmatic frame of reference. Well, actually, we know Catholics poll about the same as everybody else. It's just the Catholic church that's against it. I even know Catholic physicians who will support patients in the option of medical aid and dying. 
And we know 75% of Californians actually do support the option of medical aid in dying. So it's, you know, the, most people support it, but those who don't are very loud usually. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Yeah. I, and you know, it matters in Orange County. We have a really wonderful action team there of volunteers in Orange County. And one of the women in our action team, her husband had a really hard time accessing medical aid and dying because he was at Hogue. Uh, and this was about two years ago, but thankfully he was able to find a hospice where their doctors were allowed to support him in the option. But, you know, it's difficult. There aren't a ton of healthcare systems um, and hospices where a patient can find care because of the growing religious healthcare systems in our state. Folks can watch for postings of Robert Braithwaite, president and chief executive officer of Hogue, they are sending out notices of where they are in the process of disentangling co-ownership with the Providence St. Joseph system. Mm -hmm. That's great. I did talk to another woman today, actually, in Orange County, whose friend was able to access the end-of-life option, and she was at Kaiser, and Kaiser does allow their doctors to practice. In fact, Kaiser has a really good system to make sure that patients are able to get through the whole process, and the UC Health System also does allow doctors to practice the full range of medicine, so it is possible to access the law, but Another big problem we found is that a lot of patients wait too long to ask for medical aid in dying. And by the time they ask, they really struggle to survive the mandatory minimum 15 day waiting period. Mm -hmm. And that, yeah. And that's another amendment that SB 380 will make in which the doctor who's supporting the patient, if the doctor believes the patient will not survive those 15 days the doctor would have the ability to waive that waiting period so that the patient could access the medication and the patient would still have to go through a long process. You know, they would still have to qualify, but at least they would truly have this option and not, you know, die during this mandatory waiting period, wishing that they could ease their suffering and die on their own terms. So Samantha, I really want to break it down though. Just yeah. one doctor and what, what would qualify as a doctor? Could the, a doctor of osteopathy, a doctor, a nurse practitioner, I mean, who Great. qualifies and how many? Great question. So actually a patient needs to have two different doctors confirm their eligibility in order to qualify for the law. And the doctor has to be qualified in and certified in being able to diagnose the patient with a terminal illness and give a prognosis. Right now, nurse practitioners are not, they are not part of the law. They cannot be the, the prescriber, only a physician who's certified in California and has the qualifications to determine the terminal illness. So this can be your family physician. It can be an oncologist. It can be a surgeon, you know, and most terminally ill patients have several doctors because of whatever it is they have. And again, because these are people who don't want to die, they usually are trying to treat their illness, depending on, you know, the stage of life they're in and what the illness is. So, you know, there's a fairly wide range of doctors who can support patients in this option. And, you know, our goal is to normalize the option of medical aid and dying because a patient shouldn't have to go to a specialty doctor to receive this end of life option. It's really not that different from many other end of life options. I can walk you through the cliff notes of Please how do. to and, and yeah. that waiver, is that like another colored sheet of form? I know this is not a, enacted yet, but do sure. you see the, how the paperwork looks like there's the pink sheet 
that yeah. shows what kinds of options that we had envisioned and there's other things, but is there gonna be like a separate kind of, like the DNR is another color. And the so how mm -hmm. does that work as you walk us through how this- Sure. Well, I, I don't know exactly what the paperwork would be, but there is a legal document. The doctor does have check boxes they have to fill out for the patient in order for the patient to qualify. But this is a little bit different from DNR or an advanced healthcare directive, because again, the patient has to be able to advocate for themselves. And most, you know, DNR is for when the patient can't advocate for themselves. They can't tell the doctor, please right. don't resuscitate me, right? They, this is something you have to advocate for on your own. And you have to be able to take the medication yourself. Could you videotape you talking through the waiver? You could, but you know, again, you have to be mentally capable and you Correct. have to be able to take the medication yourself. Right, right, right. But just, I'm just wondering about executing sure. the waiver. If that, that could be a, a video or so. I, I'm just trying to figure out all of the ways that I've learned from some end of life kinds of logistics. Well, the, so the doctor would have to essentially say this patient is not going to survive the next 15 days in, in my best medical judgment. I don't think they're going to survive it. And actually Oregon has amended their law. California's end of life option act is based on Oregon's law which they've had for almost 25 years. But Oregon also found that too many people were suffering and dying during the mandatory waiting period. So they've amended their law. It's, it's very similar to our amendment where the, the prescribing doctor, if they think the patient won't survive, they can waive the waiting period so that the patient can access the medication. But there's still a lot of other steps. So it's not, you know, this isn't something where you can ask your doctor in the morning and pick it up in the evening. In order to qualify for medical aid in dying, the patient has to have two different doctors, the main prescribing physician who has to let them know about a lot of different information. They need to, you know, inform the patient of the full range of end of life options, make sure the patient isn't being coerced and make sure the patient meets all of the eligibility requirements we've talked about. Then the patient has to have a second consultation by another doctor to confirm the patient's eligibility. If either of the doctors aren't sure about the patient's mental capacity, then the patient may have a third optional mental health assessment by a psychologist or psychiatrist. And SB 380 actually would amend the law to include social workers who could also perform that mental health assessment. It's really a third mental health assessment to make sure the patient is capable of making medical decisions. The patient still has to make two oral requests to the main prescribing doctor for the aid and dying medication. They is that all elaborate that's, or just, it's just no, an outright. Just, yeah. They need to add, to say, I would like a prescription for medical aid and dying, write it in my medical record that I've made this oral request. Cause the doctor needs to document those okay. oral requests. That's all you have to say. That's all you have to say. But, you know, I, I will say we've heard from some patients that they think they've made their first oral request, but the doctor never wrote it down in the medical record. The doctor thought they were just talking, you know, hypothetically oh, okay. or something. Well, this is why these conversations are so important beforehand. Yes. Yeah. Okay. With yeah. the doctor, with the loved ones. Yes, absolutely. And you have to be really clear and direct. And for some people that is really difficult, um, but this is your life and, you know, we encourage everybody to advocate for what they want, right. At the end of their life. Right. So the patient also has to have a written request that's signed by two different qualified witnesses. 
And um, there's 18 and older and, and sound mind and body yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. Only one of them can be related to you. Only one of them can be, you know, employed at the place where you're getting medical care from your, neither of your doctors who are um, supporting you in the option can be one of the qualified witnesses. You know, again, it's to show that there's no coercion or abuse. Right. Yeah. And I, and I got to say, you know, aid in dying has been authorized now, um, similar to California's law in nine states in Washington, DC. And we have about 50 years of combined data from all of the departments of health where this law has been authorized. And there's never been a single incident of coercion or abuse. No doctor has ever lost their license. You know, it's, it's a very safe law the only problems that we hear about are patients who are unable to access it because they're so, it's just such a long process. And there are some unnecessary roadblocks that prevent eligible patients from accessing medical aid and dying like that 15 day waiting period. Well, I'm envisioning too, Samantha, there could be language issues. If their hearing is off, there could be a lot of barriers to surpass just to get everything down just right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, finding a doctor can be difficult. Um, Most doctors, you know, have this false belief that death is somehow failure, but we're all going to die. Death is not failure. The failure is not having the death that you want at the end of the day, you know, it's such a personal thing. And, you know, a lot of people compare death to birth, right? Now we live in a culture and an age where women really can put together a birth plan and try to have the birth they want, right? It never goes exactly the way you think it will. But, you know, the way you leave this world is similar to the way you enter it in that, you know, it's important to plan for it. And so many people are affected. It's not just the person who's dying. And, you know, when you are able to have the death that you want, It can help not only the person who's leaving us, but also the loved ones to know that they were able to support their loved one in the end of life experience they wanted. I think it can really help the grieving process. And for the family, for for the survivors to have that last right to theirs. Yeah, be able to say goodbye, and you know, we I've heard stories about people having memorials before the person's passed away, so they can be there, and you know, that just so many beautiful stories of of people. You know, nobody wants their loved one to die, but when they can have the opportunity to say goodbye and give their loved one the death that they want, it's really it's really poetic and beautiful. Well, thank you, Samantha, for telling me, uh, for suggesting that whole idea. I had never thought of it, and I thought I was an expansive thinker to have the (laughs) memorial service before before the death. Well, I... We have so much more to talk about. In an extension of this interview, we can cover... So I would like, if you have any kind of narrative to offer here, how... COVID has exposed the shortcomings of end of life decisions and options available to patients and families. I'm sure it's happening when we heard of such horror stories about the separation of family members in the COVID units, an unexpected kind of collapse of that patient's health. And how does this figure in with that? You know, it's, it's so heartbreaking to hear these stories and, um, I'm grateful. We live in an age with telemedicine 
having to say goodbye to a loved one over an iPad is not ideal, but it's, I do think it's better than nothing. You know, I will say that medical aid and dying is not an option for people with COVID-19 because of that terminal diagnosis in six month prognosis, right? COVID. Okay. We're still figuring it out. It's not diagnosed the same way cancer is right. Or ALS it's this virus that affects everybody differently and it moves so quickly. You know, a patient really doesn't have time to go through the process for medical aid and dying, even if they were somehow able to get that terminal diagnosis and six month prognosis. Um, We do have on our website, a COVID-19 toolkit And we talk about the realities of contracting COVID-19 because a lot of people don't realize that things like CPR, it's not the way it is in the movies. You know, usually you're, you're breaking ribs, you're getting in there. And a lot of people don't survive CPR. Talk about being intubated because Mm. it can be very difficult for a, a person, depending on other underlying illnesses, they may have their age to be intubated. And And that's a choice to be intubated or not to be. Well, hopefully it's a choice, right? It should be a choice. And um, I know I would want to be, but I don't have any underlying illnesses and I'm, I'm relatively young. But we've all Uh, read though. We've read and heard about some people who opted not to. Yes. They'd seen enough. Yeah. Yeah. Like in the bed next to them. Yeah. Yeah. I know, you know, my mom, she was terminally ill when I was growing up and she was intubated and she survived. But when they took out the breathing tube, it was very traumatic for her. And she, for a long time, just felt awful. And that's common um, depending on who you are, what your body's doing. But I, you know, I think what COVID-19 it's just been so horrific, but perhaps it's helped people talk about death more easily. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but I'd like to think it is because when you're faced with it every single day, I mean, our whole lives have changed. Maybe it's helped people really reflect on their own lives and, you know, ensure you're living life to the fullest, but also think about how do you want to go? Have you put together your advanced healthcare directive? We've done so many webinars this year on how to put together your advanced healthcare directive. And it's so important, right? And talk to your loved ones, talk to your, you know, have a healthcare proxy, make sure they know what you want. Because I've actually seen one of those. It was on advanced directive and it was, it was very reassuring, Samantha. It was very helpful. Good. That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. So, and that's folks, how I got a hold of uh, Samantha with her campaign here, because some magically I started receiving them and I, I sat in on one of those. The long haulers have, Mm -hmm. they are so severely maimed by the ravages of COVID. I don't mean to be melodramatic. They are the ravages. So the long haulers might end up though on that six month schedule. Yes. And we don't know the long-term effects of COVID, but I've read and heard some really awful stories about people, you know, who've now had it for, they had it over a year ago and they still can't function normally. They feel terrible. There's something wrong with their lungs and, you know, they're still sick. And, you know, I, I think it could be considered a pre-existing condition at some point, once we learn more about it, and perhaps you're right, perhaps it will be diagnosed as some kind of terminal illness, depending on the form of COVID you get. We don't, we don't know yet. We'll find out there will be, there will be more information. Well, you've been so generous with your time, Samantha. Thank you for being on Ask a Leader today. It's been really helpful. 
Thank you so much for having me, Claudia. I really appreciate it. My guest was Samantha Trad, the California State Director for Compassion and Choices, speaking in her capacity as the head of the Action Network for Compassion and Choices here on Ask a Leader. Well, that's my wrap. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks, let's keep using them through this year of the ox. Thank you.